Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Hello, Colonel. How are you today? I am doing just great, Brian. And anyway, weather is clear, but cold by Alabama standards right now. And that means it was down to probably around 30 last night. I had to clean off a little bit of ice on my horse's water trough, which happens fairly often here in the winter. Down here in Alabama, it very seldom will stay below freezing all day. We'll go down the 20s, sometimes at night, but once in a while, we'll have a day where it never hits freezing. But most of the time, by this time of day, it's up to 50 or so, and that's about what it is right now. It's a beautiful day. One thing you'll find, though, in Alabama is that the 50 degrees here probably feels like 60 or 70 where you are, you know, with all the humidity here. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, if, we, if we're tempted to complain, let's have this conversation in July. <laughs> See if yes, we're complaining. Oh, it's a little cold different. today. No. It will be different. Exactly. Yeah. So we, then 90 degrees here would feel like 100 degrees out there. Oh, but, I, I don't miss humidity. Not, not a bit. No. I don't particularly like it, but that kind of comes with the territory of living down here, I guess. Now, we've been working our way through the Ten Commandments, and, and we've only started, actually. Um, I understand we've uh, we've found our way to the second commandment for discussion this week. That's right. And now when we talk about the second commandment, here's something that might surprise a lot of our listeners. Sometimes you wonder about how those commandments are numbered. And in fact, there is a different form of numbering for different religious traditions. The Jews have one way of numbering the Ten Commandments. Catholics and many Lutherans number it another way. And then there is another way that it is numbered by most Protestants, and I believe by the Reformed tradition as well. For Jews, you know, the command starts, I am the Lord thy God, and goes on to say, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. To the Jews, I am the Lord thy God, is the first commandment. We would look at that and say, that's not a commandment, that's a statement. But you don't have that clear distinction in types of statements, you know, interrogatories, imperatives, and so on, in the Hebrew that you have in the English. And the more I've thought about it, there's a lot of wisdom. And the Jews saying, I am the Lord thy God, is the first commandment. But then they would go on and say the second commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, nor worship a graven image. The Catholic Church would say that I am that thou shalt have no other gods before me, nor worship a graven image, is the first commandment. And then we go on through the rest of the commandments there, and since the scriptures talk about the ten words or ten commandments, we know there are ten of them. But when you get down to number nine, then we have thou shalt not covet. And so in Catholic thinking, you have that as two commandments. Thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not covet anything that is thy neighbor's. And the way they justify this, they'll say, well, the command against adultery and the command against theft are two separate commandments. 
And therefore, the command against lusting after your neighbor's wife, the command lusting after your neighbor's property, should be two commandments as well. And one of the things that they recognize, which I think is a valid point, is that sometimes commandments are given as a hedge to other things. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's property. What's wrong with coveting your neighbor's property so long as you don't actually steal it? Well, the point is that if you covet your neighbor's property, you're more likely to steal it. If you lust after your neighbor's wife, you're more likely to commit adultery. And so the covet commandment is given as a hedge. But anyway, then you have the third, which is the, some call it the iconoclastic tradition. And this is the one used by most Protestants. And anyway, it simply says that I am the Lord thy God is an introductory statement. Thou shalt have no other gods before me is the first commandment. And thou shalt not worship a graven image is the second commandment. And then we go on through the rest all the way to 10. Well, as we look to the way this commandment is applied, we might go back to Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. And there in that passage, you recall that the Pharisees are confronting Jesus with a question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or no? And they think by this that they've got it. Because if he answers, yes, pay your taxes, then his popularity in the next Jerusalem poll is going to be down 90 points, and so he won't be a threat to them anymore. If he answers, no, don't pay your taxes, then they'll immediately go and tattle to the Romans, and they'll get him arrested. And Either way, he's out of their way, and he's no longer a threat to them. But Jesus does not directly answer their question. When you're the Son of God, you don't have to. Rather, he gives them something to think about that is far greater than anything they had asked. He says, show me a coin, and they show him a coin. He asks, whose image is this? And they say, Caesar's. And so he says, render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And here he is recognizing that Caesar, civil government, has authority that comes from God, not just the pagan gods, but the true God of the heavens has authorized civil government. That gives government authority. It is never before recognized. And then he also places upon government a limit. That government is not recognized before, at least this government hasn't recognized it that there are some things that are God's. There are some things that are beyond Caesar's jurisdiction. And so, in this way, he's not only recognized governmental authority, but he has limited that authority as well. Engelbert Stauffer, in a wonderful book titled Christ and the Caesars, has devoted a whole chapter to this particular encounter. He says that one thing that Jesus has done here is that he has placed upon the state this limit and keeping the state within its God-ordained limits is the responsibility of the church. Lord Acton said something to that effect. But he also points out that when the Pharisees show Jesus the coin, 
And he asks whose image is this, and they say Caesar's. That tells us something that was unique about Israel at that time. See, unlike other peoples throughout the empire, the Jews had this very strict commandment, thou shalt not worship a graven image. Now, Roman coins of this time basically were minted for propaganda purposes, and they would have all kinds of messages on it, like Augustus, the son of God, and messages like that, that, you know, Apollo loves the Emperor Hadrian, and other things like that that were all designed to give divine sanction to the Emperor of Rome. But if they had used that kind of coin in Israel, the Jews, at least the faithful Jews, would have refused to use it because of the command, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And so, during most of the times of Jewish history, while they were under Roman rule, the Romans gave the governors of Judea a special exemption to print coins that had only the image of the emperor and no divine inscriptions or anything like that. Otherwise, the Jews wouldn't have used it. That shows you that they took this commandment very seriously. So that being the case, let's uh, look at this commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image of any or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so there is the commandment, and we see it's a pretty absolute commandment. If we commonly say, as we are interpreting Scripture, if the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. In other words, there's a preference for a literal interpretation of Scripture, unless that literal interpretation just doesn't make sense. But does that literal interpretation make sense here? Well, let's see after the break. back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Well, let's get back to that second commandment, Colonel. All right. Again, if you take it very literally and just take verse 4 by itself, it is a very strict commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. In other words, you can't make anything, any image of anything that is in the heavens. And many would understand that, but no, we can't make an image of God. But also we can't make an image of anything on the earth. We can't make mountains or trees. We can't make animals. We can't make images of people 
or anything that is in the water. In other words, we can't make images of fish. If we take that commandment literally, it is very, very strict, and basically it means we can't have art at all, except maybe the most abstract art that isn't really an image of anything. But is that really what it means? For one thing, if that were what it would mean, it would conflict with other portions of Scripture. For example, in Exodus 25, just five chapters later, God commands Moses to make cherubim, that is, one type of angel, two cherubim that are to be on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that would seem to be a direct contradiction to the command, thou shalt not make any graven image, or anything that is a likeness of heaven above. In Second or rather First Kings 6, we find that is the decor of the inner temple, there are two large statues of angels, and those are there by commandment of God. That would again contradict this commandment if it's taken as literally as we've understood it. And also we see in the outer walls of the temple, they are decorated with carved angels, with palm trees, with flowers, with 12 bulls. Again, if we take that commandment literally, that would seem to be prohibited. In Ezekiel 41, Ezekiel is given a vision of the new temple. And here again, he describes this new temple as having images of angels and palm trees and the like. Now, another thing that we find interesting, and I think this gives us a clue to what God is actually saying here. In Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 through 9, God commands Moses to make a bronze serpent. And he does so. That's a commandment to make a graven image of something that is on the earth. But now we come to some 700 years later, that bronze serpent is still in existence. And in 2 Kings chapter 8, King Hezekiah destroys that bronze serpent. And he destroys it because the people were worshiping it. Second Kings 18.4, he removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For under those days, the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Nehushtan, which that's a Hebrew word, which means a trifling piece of brass. Now here, this gives us the key. The graven image must be, that command must be read in tandem with the command against worshiping it. Let's look at that commandment again. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. That's verse 4. Verse 5, thou shalt not bow thyself down to them, nor serve them. But put those together, and what seems to be prohibited here is making a graven image for the purpose of worshiping it. After all, if we take verse 4 literally and say you can't make any graven image of anything in heaven or on earth or in the water, you can't make any graven image of anything, well then, verse 5 then becomes redundant. Say, why do you say thou shalt not bow down to them nor serve them when you've already said you're not supposed to make them in the first place? 
Verse 5 is redundant if we give that literal interpretation to verse 4. And again, the key here, I think, is to see Hezekiah. Moses has made a bronze serpent after the command of God. But 700 years later, by the time of Hezekiah, the people have started to worship that bronze serpent. So now it is a violation of the graven image command. And so Hezekiah has it destroyed. So looking at the command here, it is not a prohibition against all graven images. It's not a command against all forms of art. It is simply saying, we don't create art forms for the purpose of worshiping those art forms. When we do that, that becomes idolatry. And that is what the Word of God forbids. God is one God. And when he says, I am a jealous God, what he means by this is not that he gets jealous in the sense that you might be jealous of somebody who is dating your girlfriend or something like that. Say a jealous God in this sense means that God is a God of glory, and he does not share his glory. And if we try to share his glory, then that harms not only us, but all creation. Because when we glorify God, we glorify his attributes. And as we glorify his attributes, we become like his attributes. And so it is for our benefit, as well as for his glory, that we worship him and him only, and we glorify him and him only. It is for our benefit that we are commanded to stay away from idols. And there are bad consequences to idolatry. And as we read there in verse 5, going on to verse 6, that God is a jealous God. He visits the iniquity of the fathers upon children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate. In other words, if one generation is engaged in idolatry, the effects of that might be felt not to them, but, or maybe not only to them, but to several generations thereafter. God forgives sin, but the natural consequences of sin continue. And in verse 6, he says, he shows mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Anyway, that's what's behind the graven image commandment. In fact, we read in the Psalms, for example, about the graven images that the pagans worship, how they have eyes but see not, they have ears but hear not, and so on. Well, if they are simply idols, then what's the problem? Are they, in fact, false gods? Not exactly. They don't see anything. They don't hear anything. In fact, when Gideon destroys the idols that his people have made, and the people want to slay Gideon for having destroyed the idols, and they come to Gideon's father and say, turn over Gideon to us, we can destroy him. He has destroyed our idols, and that's a sacrilege. His father simply says, well, if they were really gods, they could take care of themselves. If they can't even defend themselves against Gideon, they must not be much of gods. Anyway, so there's nothing there. However, 
Satan is clever. And Satan, with the power of demons, can take idols. And demons can use those idols to seemingly give them power and thereby mislead many. And if an idol is nothing but an idol, that's bad enough. If it is demonic, then, of course, it is far worse. Well, let's look at how the reformers looked at this issue of graven images after the break. Welcome you back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law and taking a deeper dive into the Second Commandment. This is fascinating, Colonel. When we look to medieval Europe and the Roman Catholic Church, which dominated Western Europe, and the Orthodox Church, which dominated Eastern Europe, we see images or icons as the Orthodox Church would describe them all over the place. And they would insist that we're not worshiping them, we're only venerating them, but sometimes it seemed to come close. And one of the concerns that the Protestant reformers had was that the Catholic Church was engaged in idolatry by having all of these graven images. That may be one of the reasons why Calvin and many of the Protestants, as they looked to the Ten Commandments, they made the graven image commandment a separate command from the command, thou shalt have no other gods before me, because they wanted to emphasize it as a second commandment. John Calvin interpreted this command very literally. And as he saw it, God is transcendent, that is, he is above us, he is above creation. And therefore, any visual representation of him deforms our understanding of him. In other words, being so far above us and not being visible to us, any attempt we make to represent God is going to deform our understanding of him because it won't even come close to what he's really like. Calvin had a very high view of the glory of God. And he said, God's glory is corrupted by an impious falsehood whenever any form is attached to him. You recall Michelangelo's painting there in the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, where you see this image of God as an old man with white hair and a beard, as he is reaching out to Adam, and Adam is reaching out to him. And does God really look like that? Well, that's a pretty respectful image of what God looks like, but God is so much greater even than that image that that deforms our understanding of Calvin says. He said, further in the Institutes, we believe it is wrong that God should be represented by a visible appearance because he has forbidden it. And it cannot be done without some defacing of his glory. And elsewhere in his Institutes, he wrote, only those things are to be sculptured or painted which the eyes are capable of seeing. 
Let not God's majesty, which is far above the perception of the eyes, be debased through unseemly representations. Well, here is the problem with that. John of Damascus, writing in the 700s, spoke of this same issue. And he said, it is clearly a prohibition against representing the invisible God. You look to this command, thou shalt not make or worship a gold or graven image. That is a clear command. You can't make a representation of the invisible God. But what about Jesus? John of Damascus says, but when you see him who has no body become man for you, then you will make representations of his human aspect. When the invisible, having clothed himself in the flesh, becomes visible, then represent the likeness of him who has appeared. When he who, having been the consubstantial image of the Father, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, thus becoming bound in quantity and quality, having taken on the carnal image, then paint and make visible to everyone him who desired to become visible. In other words, God, through his son Jesus, desired to become visible. And so it is appropriate to paint images of Jesus. Now, we certainly recognize that we don't know exactly what Jesus looked like and that the representations in art that we have of him go back to maybe the 3rd or 4th century, and how accurate those may be as to what Jesus actually looked like, we don't know. But nevertheless, when you see a picture of the way we display Jesus today, if that reminds you of Jesus, it seems to me that's not a bad thing. But Calvin and Calvinists still thought so. In the Second Helvetic Confession, which is a Calvinist confession, they said, since God as spirit is in his essence invisible and immense, he cannot really be expressed by any art or image. For this reason, we have no fear of pronouncing with scripture that images of God are mere lies. Therefore, we reject not only the idols of the Gentiles, but also the images of Christians, referring particularly to what you'd see in a Catholic cathedral or an Orthodox cathedral. Although Christ assumed human nature, Yet he did not on that account assume it, in order to provide a model for carvers and painters. Images are forbidden by the law and the prophets. That continues to be the Calvinist position today, and in some Calvinist churches, you will not even see a picture of Jesus. In some you will, but in some you won't, because they will say that is a violation of the graven image commandment. Well, there is a difference here between, in the Greek, dulia, which means to venerate, to give honor, or homage, or latria and hyperdulia, which means to adore and worship. Nevertheless, it may be improper even to give veneration to the images. Luther put it this way, and as a Lutheran, of course, I tend to think Luther got it right. But Luther put it this way, he said, it is okay to have images, but not to be overly attached to them. In other words, he's saying, have them, but don't worship them. Tear images out of your heart, 
not necessarily out of your eyes. Should you do only first or both? Which of these two forms of destroying images is best? I will let each man judge for himself. And in his essay against the heavenly prophets, he wrote, according to the law of Moses, no other images are forbidden than an image of God which one worships. I think that states things pretty well. It's all right to have images, but it is not all right to worship them. There is a hymn that I've always loved, the hymn, Abide With Me, and the last verse is sometimes left off, but I love the last verse. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. The picture you might get there is of a priest holding a cross before the eyes of a dying person as he performed those last rites. Now, is that right or is that wrong? Well, if we think there is something magic in that crucifix, then it becomes pagan idolatry and that is wrong. But if it helps us, especially if it helps a dying person, focus his eyes and focus his thoughts upon the crucified Christ, I would say that is good. And the same is true, I'd say, of images in general. That images of Jesus, of the disciples, of the saints, images of the Old Testament prophets and so on, recognizing that they may not be exactly what those prophets really look like. We do know what Mo, or we do know what Moses looked like. We know that he looked like Charlton Heston. We know that from the Ten Commandments movie, <laughs> but I'm getting of course. But if these images like this, if they remind us of Christ, if they help us to focus on the Bible, that's good. Remember, in the Middle Ages, many people, most people, were illiterate. And seeing those images in the church was the way of teaching people about those images. But if we start to worship those images, or if in that crucifix we think there's something magic in that crucifix itself, that then is pagan idolatry, and that is wrong. If you have a plastic Jesus, for example, on the dashboard of your car, if that gives you a reminder of Jesus, that he's always with you, that's a good thing. If you think you don't have to drive safely because that plastic Jesus on the dashboard of your car is going to save you from an accident, no, then that becomes wrong. That becomes idolatry. So images are fine. So long as we don't worship them, so long as we use them to remind us of God and to remind us of Christ and of the things of the Bible. Once we start to worship them, or once we start to think there is magic in them, then they become wrong. Then they become a violation of the commandment, thou shalt not have or worship a graven image. Welcome back.
back. This is our final segment today for Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Well, again, it's great to be with you to look at this commandment. Thou shalt have no graven image, and thou shalt not worship a graven image, and to see what this actually means. And as we've seen, taking it in context with other passages of Scripture, it does not mean all forms of art or even all forms of graven image are prohibited. We are prohibited from making them for the purpose of worshiping them. And when it goes on to say, thou shalt not bow down to them or serve them, that would be redundant if we were forbidden from making them entirely in the first place. But let's go back to the Pharisees and to Jesus and to the coin and to Jesus' words, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Could we worship government? Could we worship the state? Would that be a form of idolatry? What about the flag? Or what about the Statue of Liberty? Or what about the Liberty Bill? Or other things that we look to that are some of the primary symbols of our country in that we love, that we are attached to, and that we would feel a great deal of emotion if any of those things were defaced or destroyed. Well, again, I believe patriotism is commanded by Scripture. Fear God, honor the king, we are told. And when we are told we would honor our father and our mother, well, the state is... Its power comes from parental authority. And I believe God has enjoined patriotism upon us, that we are to love our country. But the state is ordained of God, but that doesn't mean the state is God. And worshiping the state, worshiping the state as God, is a form of idolatry. If we look to the state for cradles of the grave provisions for our health, for our education. If we look to the courts to give us the ultimate definition of truth, if we look to Dr. Dr. Fauci or to the Centers for Disease Control for the final word as to what is right and what is wrong as far as medicine and health, if we do that, then we are really worshiping the state as God. And state worship is one of the most common forms of idolatry in the world. We see that, for example, when Nebuchadnezzar gives the command that everyone is to fall down and worship that graven image that he has created. That graven image is really a representation of himself and of the Babylonian Empire. And people are to worship the state there. But, of course, the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to do so because that would violate the command against worshiping graven images. Anyway, so as we can see then, this commandment, thou shalt not have or worship a graven image, is relevant to law and government, relevant to our Constitution. It tells us that government is of God, but government is not God itself and is not to be worshiped as God. Now, we have a couple of cases that are very interesting, and we talked about those a little bit last week, 
And I think it's very important to see what's been going on since that time. One of these was the case involving Navy SEALs. 35 Navy SEALs had sued the Biden administration because they had applied for religious exemptions from the vaccine requirement, and their exemption requests were denied. And they filed a lawsuit through an organization called First Liberty Institute. We at the Foundation for Moral Law filed an amicus brief in their support. And anyway, so last week, a federal judge issued a ruling in their favor. Judge Reed O'Connor of the Northern District of Texas Federal District Court ruled that in their case, the Navy had violated their religious freedom and that the Navy was enjoined by his order from taking any further proceedings against these Navy SEALs and various other Navy personnel that are joined in this action. And so for the time being, at least, they are safe. They can continue to follow their religious convictions, not get the vaccine, and they will not be discharged or court-martialed or disciplined in any way for this. Now, that may not continue. This is only a preliminary injunction. Also, that injunction applies not to military people in general. Rather, it applies only to those specific Navy personnel that are joined in the action. But it provides a roadmap that others can use. And there's another lawsuit that's been filed in Florida by the Liberty Council out of Liberty University that is challenging the the mandates in the military on a broader basis than that. There are a number of other lawsuits that military personnel have entered in this case, in their cases on this issue. And we'll have to see what the Supreme Court does, but the, the Navy SEALs case gives the others a good model or plan or roadmap for going to victory. Now we have another case, actually two cases that were argued before the Supreme Court last Friday. We, in the foundation, filed an amicus brief in support of those who were challenging Biden's vaccine mandates in these cases. And if you recall what happened in these cases, back in September, President Biden gave a speech in which he said that our patients, those who are not getting vaccinated, is wearing thin. And so he said that I am directing OSHA to draft regulations that would require the vaccine in certain circumstances. And OSHA released their directives in this regard. It's what's called an emergency temporary standard. And it is none of those. It is not an emergency because it's been going on for a year and a half. It is not temporary because there is no expiration date to this order. And it is not a standard. It is, in fact, a regulation that companies will be fined for if they do not follow it. But the mandate that OSHA has issued basically said that all companies that have 100 or more employees 
must require their employees to get vaccinated. And all companies that contract with the federal government have to require that their employees get vaccinated. This was argued before the Supreme Court last Friday, the 7th of January, and I was a little disappointed in the way the attorneys for those challenging the mandates address the issues, I thought they gave away too much. At the beginning of the argument, Justice Thomas began asking Attorney Keller, well, what about the necessary and proper clause of the Constitution? And what is meant by necessary here? Well, Mr. Keller should have responded that the necessary and proper clause does not just give the government blanket power to do anything the government thinks might be necessary to accomplish some purpose. It gives the government power to do that which is necessary only to accomplish purposes elsewhere delegated to the federal government in the Constitution. Now, there is a Commerce Clause power, but there is not a power over health. And when Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan began talking about a federal police power, and a power of the federal government to safeguard health, that is a power that is delegated to the states, not to the federal government. Anyway, we will see what the Supreme Court decides. And I did think that the attorneys, again, probably gave away too much when they seemed to concede, in answer to one of the justice questions, that the vaccine does, in fact, prevent people from getting or spreading COVID. There is strong evidence that was presented by the frontline doctors in their brief that suggests it may reduce the symptoms, but it doesn't actually eliminate the spread. You can still get it, you can still spread it, you just won't have the symptoms as much. Well, if that's the case, then the government's interest in forcing you to get a vaccination is far less because it's not protecting others from you It only means your symptoms are going to be less severe. Again, we will see what the Supreme Court decides. There are some indications that they may issue a decision on Thursday, the 13th of January, but we'll be watching to see and praying for a just result.